Chapter 15 of Why a Love by Ali Chivathea One Summer Day The week that decided Quimby's fate so unexpectedly and brought him so much woe, to sin brought good tidings. Her success at the concert had been so decided that she was the recipient of many offers for the coming season and was enabled to accept those that promised most advantageously. No one was more honestly glad than was Natty in her congratulations. Natty, who had fought and overcome that selfish pain and bitter wonder of hers, why Sin should have everything and she nothing. Since the approach of summer, a much-talked-of project among them had been a little picnic party in the woods, and as Clem now proposed to get it up in honour of Sin's success, the plan was immediately carried out. Mrs. Simonson, with a feeble protest, because Miss Kling was not invited, accompanied them. The them, of course, consisted of Sin, Natty, Clem, Joe, and the newly betrothed ones. Nature was kind to these seekers of her solitudes, and gave them a perfect day, one of those that occur in our uncertain climate less often than might be wished, but that penetrate everywhere with their sunshine when they do come, even into hearts where sunshine seldom glances. So for the nonce, our friends forgot all their little troubles, even Quimby, brightening up and ceasing to think of his engagement as they stood underneath the green trees by the banks of the small river, sunshine everywhere, and the music of birds in the air. Is it not glorious? cried Sin, like a child in her exuberance. Why not camp out here and stay all summer? ecstatically suggested Clem as he fondled his fishing tackle. But it might not always be pleasant like this said practical Mrs. Simonson. When the sun shines, we forget it may ever storm, said Joe, and looking admiringly at Sin as he spoke. Is our artist a philosopher as well as the rest we know he is? asked Sin, laughing. A very little one, five feet six, replied Joe. Well, we will have no shadows today, said Sin. No shadows today, echoed Joe, then turning to Mrs. Simonson asked, I hope you do not still regret Miss Kling. I suppose she would spoil it all, that good lady committed herself enough to say. Well, really, I must say, remarked Celeste, who now gave herself many airs, and evidently looked upon Sin and Natty as commonplace creatures, not engaged. I must say now that you are speaking of her, that she does cling in a way that is not pleasant sometimes. She actually annoys Pa. I thought she entertained a high regard for your father, said mischievous Sin. That is exactly it, replied Celeste. Too I a regard. Truly she behaves very ridiculously, while she positively waylays Pa, so indelicate in a woman, you know, with sublime unconsciousness of ever having indulged in the pastime of waylaying herself. Such an old creature, too. She's always coming and wanting to mend his old clothes and stockings. Poor Pa actually has to lock himself in his room sometimes. The vision of poor Pa thus pursued was too much for the gravity of the company, and there was a general laugh. It is true, asserted Celeste. How isn't it, Ralphie? Appealing to her betrothed with appropriate bashfulness. Everybody stared at this. No one ever before really knew that Quimby possessed a front door to his name, and he, as surprised as anyone at the cognomen Love had discovered, fell back on a rolling log and clutched his legs to that extent that they must have been black and blue for a week afterwards. Clem saved the discomforted Ralphie 
the necessity of replying by interposing with, Come, come, let us not talk on such incongruous subjects this lovely day. Let us rather talk sentiment. And he gave a prodigious wink in Joe's direction. I fear we are not a very sentimental party, laughed Sin, adding mischievously, except, of course, Quimby and Celeste. Oh, uh, I am not, I assure you. I am not in the least, you know, protested Quimby, taking a roll on the log. Never felt less so in my life. Why, Ralphie, exclaimed Celeste, reproachfully, and to his distress, went up close to him and would have sat down by his side, but for the uncontrollable rolling propensity of that log, which made it impossible. How is it with you, Joe? queried Sin. Can you not for once forget your horrible hobby and be a little sentimental in honour of the day? Joe, who was throwing sticks into the water, to the great disturbance of the bugs, and plainly shown annoyance of a big frog, made a somewhat surprising reply. Decidedly seriously, he said, I fear if I should attempt it, I might get too much in earnest. Oh, we will risk that, so please begin, said Sin, but staring at him a little as she spoke. Joe, sentimental, just imagine it. Will you risk it? he asked, still seriously, and with so peculiar an expression that she could reply only by another astonished stare. But really, it does not pay to be sentimental, as you all ought to have found out long ago, as Joe and I have, Natty said, jestingly, yet with an undertone of earnestness. Then, said Clem dryly, since it is so with us, let us fish, and he threw his line into the stream. Sin, Joe, and Mrs. Simonson followed his example. Quimby declined joining in the sport, and perhaps, likening himself to the fish, balanced himself on the log, and looked on with a pathetic face. Celeste, as in duty bound, remained by his side. Natty, too, was an observer only, and from the expression of her face was decidedly not amused. I think it is cruel, she exclaimed as Joe took a fish off Sin's hook. I quite agree with you, Quimby replied quickly, in answer to Nassie's observation. It is cruel. But perhaps the fish were made for people to catch, suggested the Pacific Mrs. Simpson, who had not yet been able to get a bite. Yes, acquiesced Clem, pulling up a skinny little fish. They are no worse off than we poor mortals, after all. We must each fulfil our destiny, whether man or fish. Yes, it is all fate exclaimed Quimby vehemently. We cannot help ourselves. You believe in fate, then? I don't think I do, said Sin, with a glance half humorous, half pitying at its victim on the log. What incentive would we have to any effort if we were sure everything was marked out for us in advance? That is a question requiring too much effort for us to discuss on a warm day, said Natty. Certain circumstances must bring about certain results, you will acknowledge. Clem gravely remarked. But it is said that every soul that is born as a twin somewhere, and if so, that must be fate, said Mrs. Simonson. Miss Kling's theory, I believe, laughed Natty. If it is so, the right ones don't often come together, said Quimby gloomily. We are an exception, then, to the general rule, simpered Celeste. Quimby groaned, and then murmured something about the toothache. Poor fellow! said Sin in a low voice to Natty. After all, there is something in fate, Natty sighed. Perhaps so, she said. Well, we will not get solemn over fate, said Joe cheerily. Then, in a lower voice, as he glanced at Sin, he added, Yet. 
and do not frighten away what few fish there are here with your theories, commanded Clem. Although this mandate was obeyed, and for a time silence reigned, it was not long before they were all singing a gay song, started by Clem himself, even Quimby joining in the chorus with a feeble tenor. But they were tired of fishing by that time, and began to feel as if a little refreshment would not be out of place, and would indeed enhance the loveliness of nature. So a fire was made, and lunch baskets unpacked. It will take a good many of those fish for a mouthful, declared Clem, who was cook. You may have my share. I can't eat creatures I have seen squirm, said Natty. Ah, you fastidious young woman, what shall I ever do with you, if you're cast away on a desert island with me? exclaimed Clem in mock despair. Saved up a telegraph wire, and then she would need nothing more, insinuated Sin. And get snubbed for my pains, muttered Clem, sotto voce. But Natty caught the words, and an expression of distress passed over her face. This reminds me of that feast, Sin declared, as they sealed themselves wherever convenient, with a dish of whatever was handy. Only more so, added Clem. What feast? asked Celeste curiously. One we had once, Sin replied evasively, glad there was something Celeste did not know about. In fact, in the matter of curiosity, Celeste was an embryo Miss Kling. I'm sorry we have no Charlotte Russes today, Quimby, remarked Clem, with an expression of transparent innocence. Quimby could only reply with a groan. The recollections awakened were too much. What is the matter now, Ralphie? asked the loving Celeste. Again, Quimby muttered something about that tooth. Oh, said Celeste tenderly, you really must have it, Ralphie. The possibility of being obliged to part with a sound tooth in self-defence restored him for the time being, but he was not the only one to whom the retrospect brought a momentary pain. Natty sighed as she looked back to the day that had brought Clem, but not restored, as she then supposed, but taken away her sea. The salubrious air and the invigorating odour of the forest adds immeasurably to the natural capacity of the appetite, commented Joe, gravely, as he passed his plate for the seventh fish. Ah, sighed Celeste, who prided herself on her delicacy. I never could eat more than would satisfy a mouse, and since my engagement, simpering, I cannot swallow enough to scarce keep me alive. Quimby looked up eagerly. I beg pardon, but if the... If the engagement weighs upon you, I am willing to release you, you know, he exclaimed, hopefully. You jealous creature, replied Celeste archly. You know, Ralphie, that no consideration can make me release you. Quimby knew it only too well, and sighed as he picked a chicken bone. A great objection to dining in the woods is that one is apt to find his food unexpectedly seasoned said Clem, as he captured a six-legged bug of an adventurous spirit that had sought to investigate the contents of his plate. Isn't it strange that bugs don't seem half so bad in our food here as they would at home, said Miss Simonson. We can get used to anything if we only think so, said Sin, bringing her cheery philosophy to the front. Yes, assented Quimby, mournfully. I am used to it, you know. Sin laughed, and then proposed the health of the betrothed pair, which was drank in lager beer, and to which Quimby, bolstered up by Celeste, attempted to respond, 
but collapsed in the middle of the third sentence, and with the words, Thank you, and I'm used to it, you know, sat down, wiped his forehead on his napkin, and looked intensely miserable. After that, they toasted sin, and then dots and dashes, and last Joe, with mock solemnity, proposed, Fight! And just then, Quimby met with a fresh mishap, and came near ending his sufferings in a watery grave, only the water did not happen to be quite deep enough. Arising from the sharp-pointed rock that had served him for a pivot in which to eat his dinner, he stumbled, fell, and rolled over and over down the bank and into the river with a tremendous splash. Everyone jumped up in consternation. Oh, Clem, Joe, shrieked Celeste, wringing her hands and rushing down to the water's edge. Save him! Save my darling Ralphie! Ralphie, however, was equal to saving his own life this time. The water was only up to his waist, and he had already picked himself up and was wading ashore. Uh, uh, I'm all right, he said, looking up at his anxious friends with a reassuring smile. Uh, I'm used to it, you know. As Clem assisted him up the bank, the thought came into Sin's head. Why would it not be a good idea to push Nat, accidentally, into the river, so Clem might rescue her? and thus bring about that much-to-be-desired crisis. But remembering that water could run the colours of her dress, and father, how dreadfully unbecoming it was to be wet, a fact fully demonstrated by the present appearance of Quimby, Sin rejected the idea was not exactly feasible. They left Quimby drying on a sunny bank, with Celeste as guardian angel, love, and the remains of the repast to cheer her, and the consciousness that his clothes were shrinking on him as they dried, to divert him, and wandered off through the woods and over the hills, gathering on the way so many flowers and green things that Sin declared they looked like Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane. At first they were all together, then straggled apart, Mrs. Simonson being the first dereliction, as she was not quite equal to climbing as fast as the young people. Thus it came about that Natty found herself alone with Clem, and suddenly stopping with some embarrassment, but steadily said, there is something I wish to say to you. You have spoken several times of late about my snubbing you. I want to say I have not intentionally done so, that I have the same, the same friendship for you as always, and that I wish you every happiness. What may have appeared to you as strange or cold in my conduct of late is due to secrets of my own. Clem looked at her scrutinizingly as she spoke, and the flowers he had gathered fell unheeded from his hands. It has never been my wish that any coldness should come between us. You know that, Natty, he replied earnestly. From our first acquaintance, the old acquaintance over the wire, you have held the same place in my heart. The place next to sin, was Natty's involuntary bitter thought, but she instantly stifled the feeling and answered, Thank you, Clem, and I hope we may always be the same friends. At this, Clem took an impetuous step towards her, and would have said, who can tell what, had not at the same moment Mrs. Simonson, very much out of breath, come up with them. Natty was not sorry. She had wished to say to him what she had, that she might not think her changed manner of late had been caused by any feeling of dislike, and might understand she wished him success with sin. But she had no desire to prolong the interview, and gladly walked on by the side of the puffing Mrs. Simonson. Clem, however, looked displeased, 
and followed with a thoughtful face, so thoughtful that Mrs. Simonson noticed and wondered at his preoccupation. Meanwhile, Sin, with Joe, were far in advance, and had turned into a bypath that led toward a slight, rising, sauntering on, Sin talking merrily, Joe unusually quietly, until suddenly stopping, she exclaimed, Dear me, we have lost sight of everyone, yet we not better return. No, I do not want to, answered Joe bluntly. Do not, as we say, only we must not lose them. Perhaps they will stroll this way, shall we sit down? And without waiting for a response, Sin seated herself on a big rock by the side of the pathway. Although Joe was not romantic, he had an artist eye, and could not but note the beauty of the scene before him, a scene he did not need to reproduce on canvas to remember ever after. The mountains on the background, the narrow path sloping down from the near hill to where on the grey and moss-covered rock Sin sat, her dark eyes mellow with the summer sunshine, and the cheery ribbons of her hat giving the requisite touch of colour to make the picture perfect. For a moment he stood in silent admiration, then taking off his hat and smoothing down his shaven locks, he said, To tell the truth, Sin, I do hope they will not stroll this way. They are around altogether too much, and I can never have a quiet talk with you. I declare, I believe, in addition to your being unsentimental and all that, you are becoming a confirmed grumbler, exclaimed Sin, as she caught one of the boughs of the tree overhead and turned a merrily protesting face towards him. Joe looked at her, and a queer expression came over his face. Am I? he said slowly. Well, would you like to see me sentimental? Would you like to see me make a fool of myself? Nothing would give me greater pleasure, cried Sin. Then, exclaimed Joe, planting himself directly in front of her, here goes. Now I'm going to astonish you very much, Sin. Very well. I am all in patience. Go on. But it is no joke, he replied in protest to her laughing face. If I'm to make a fool of myself, I'm going to do it in dead earnest. This is the way, of course, responded Sin, but beginning to look a little surprised. For Joe seemed very much excited, and his manner indicated anything but a jest. Extraordinary creature, that Joe. His next proceeding was even more strange. That was to ask the apparently irrelevant question, Do you remember what we were all saying a short time ago? About fate? Certainly. But are you going to favour me with a dissertation on fate, instead of making a fool of yourself? No, was the solemn reply. Have a little patience, Sin. The fact is you are my fate. There is no mistake about it. I must be either cruel or kind. And there's no alternative. Sin's surprise increased visibly. I'm sure I do not understand you at all. How queer you are today, Joe. Of course I am queer. When a man throws his theories and hobbies to the winds and confesses himself conquered, he is apt to be queer, is he not? Can you not understand that I, Joe Norton, who have always scoffed at sentiment, and proudly declare myself incapable of being a victim of love, am ready, yes, and longing, to make as big a fool of myself as the veriest, spooniest youth in existence, and all for love of you, Sin. To this exceedingly novel declaration of love, Sin responded by releasing the bow she held, and staring at him with distended eyes, and a perfectly blank face, for once in her life, speechless. I told you I was going to astonish you, said Joe quaintly, in answer to her prolonged stare, and I do not wonder that you cannot believe I really love you. I did not myself for a long time, and I was not after I knew it. But it is a fact. No joke, no mistake, but a sober, serious fact. I love you, love you, love you. 
Joe's voice grew very fervent as he uttered these last words, and was in such striking contrast to his ordinary manner that Sin could but see that this was indeed no joke. You, you love, and love me, she gasped. Yes, I could not help it. I've only known it within a few days, but I think I have loved you ever since we first met. Only those confounded theories of mine blinded me. Well, but what are you going to do about it? questioned Sin, unable yet to recover from her bewilderment. Joe looked at her wistfully. I know I am homely, Sin, and I am poor. I have nothing to offer you but an honest, loving and true heart. I suppose a man who is in love is naturally unreasonable. I never was in love before, you know, but an extravagant hope will whisper to me that even this little might not be unappreciated by you. And as he spoke, Joe's face was so transfigured that it could no longer be called plain. Sin gazed at him in wonder, and recovering partly from her first surprise, an unusual seriousness came over her own handsome face as she answered earnestly, It is not unappreciated. Oh, no, Joe, nothing to offer me but an honest, loving and true heart, you say. Why, that is everything. Then will you accept it? May I try and win your love? he asked eagerly, advancing close to her. I will work very hard to make myself worthy of it, and to win a name you need not be ashamed to bear. I'll lay myself, my life at your feet, Sin. And this is unsentimental, Joe, Sin exclaimed involuntarily. This is unsentimental, Joe, he answered in all humility. Do with him what you will. He is all yours. Into Sin's expressive eyes came some deeply stirred emotion. I am so sorry, she said sadly. So very, very sorry. What shall I say? What shall I do? I like you so much as a friend, but what you ask, Joe, could never be. The sun sank behind the distant hills, and a shadow, such as had fallen over the woods behind them, settled on Joe's face. The idea is new to you. At least, think it over. Do not leave me without a little hope, he entreated. Joe, I wish, yes, I do wish that I could love you, as you deserve to be loved said Sin earnestly. But it cannot be. It never could be. Do not deceive yourself with false hopes. Friends always, Joe. But lovers, never. Ah, exclaimed Joe bitterly, unable to restrain his jealousy. It is Clem who stands between us. Clem who stands between us, echoed Sin, astounded for the second time that day. There, now I've lowered myself in your estimation. I am but a blundering fool, Sin. You see, I am selfish in my love, and I have not yet become sentimental enough to be willing to see another fellow win what is all the world to me. Sin's face grew red, as was the sky, when the sun had gone down. Do you mean to insinuate that I am in love with Clem? she asked angrily. I would not insinuate it for all the world if you are not, was Joe's eager reply. I am not experienced in love matters, but I am quite sure he loves you. And he is very handsome, he added ruefully. What a dreadful combination of circumstances, cried Sin distractedly. But psh, it is impossible. Impossible? No, indeed. Why, it was by being so jealous of him that I first awoke to the fact that I was in love with you myself. Besides, everyone has noticed his fondness for you. They have, vehemently, and smiting the rock where she sat with her hand as she spoke. This is truly awful. 
then you do not care for him questioned joe joyfully care for him repeated sin irritably of course i care for him is it not my pet scheme that he should marry natty certainly it is and he has been from the first and now if he has gone and fallen in love with me a nice predicament we will be in but you must be mistaken i cannot believe him capable of such a thing the only reason i have to fear it is that i would not have credited it of you yesterday but you see i do love you you believe i do do you not sin asked joe too eager to press his own suit to give much thought to natty and clem oh you're not trying love me as you do not love clem am i so only as to be repulsive to you only nonsense replied sin momentarily putting aside her newest anxiety for the previous one i come to think of it i'd rather marry you than any man i know would you would you really seizing her hand hopefully then why were you not sin allowed her hand to remain in his as he said slowly and impressively i cannot marry that is entirely out of the question for me of my life love can form no part but i thought you believed in love said joe looking perplexed but clinging to her hand as a sort of anchor i do i believe it is the best happiness of life but it cannot be for me why i will tell you i owe this much in return for what you have given me what i prize even though i am compelled to refuse it what stands between us is the memory of a love gone for ever what exclaimed joe astounded in his turn you mean to say that you that you you the gayest of the gay that you joe stopped unable to proceed you hardly expected to find me in the role of the victim of a broken heart did you questioned sin with a half sad half humorous smile i admit i do not exactly answer to the average description and my heart is not broken there is only a blank in it something dead that can never live again once i loved a man with all my heart joe sighed with all the illusion of youth and he loved me the difference between his love and mine was that mine was forever and his was for a day impossible interrupted joe no man who once loved you could ever change he happened to be one of the kind who could i never really knew the cause it might have been another woman you know there always is another woman or another man added joe gloomily yes yes assented sin and continued he was one of the kind i think now who are incapable of appreciating a woman's love and consequently unworthy of it but unworthy i did not know this and wasted mine on him so he and love went out of my life forever but with a proud raising of her head i would not be weak enough to allow all my life to be ruined because one part of it was wrecked with so much gone there still remained something and of that i made the most this is why my art is everything to me and why i cannot marry you but it seems to be unreasonable that because you loved one man who was unworthy you should refuse the love of another who would try very hard to make you forget that first sad experience argued joe give me what you have left sin if it be but dead ashes oh thank god for the gift perhaps at some future day in response to my devotion even from those ashes shall arise another love so strong so intense that in comparison the old shall be but as some half-forgotten trouble of childhood whose remembrance cannot awaken even a passing pain the fervour of an honest affection made joe truly eloquent and his true blue eyes met the dark ones of sin 
glowing with earnestness and love, and for a moment she looked at him and hesitated. Then she arose, saying resolutely, No, Joe, no, do not tempt me. The experiment would be too dangerous. To give you a warmed-over affection in return for your whole heart would only be misery for us both, more misery than I am bringing to you now. I respect and esteem you, as I said before. We will be friends, comrades always. No more. As she spoke, she extended her hand to him, in farewell to all his hopes. And so understanding, he clasped it, a sadness on his face she had never seen there before. As you will, sin, he replied brokenly. But I shall love you forever. As he spoke, from below came the cry, Sin, Joe, where are you? We are going. Coming, Sin's clear voice answered back. One moment, Joe said, detaining her. May I, may I kiss you once, Sin, once, and for the last time. There were tears in Sin's eyes. She bent her handsome head. Their lips met. Then, without a word, they went on together to join those who awaited them. And it was thus fate decreed for these two. Love brings the most intense sorrows, the keenest joys of life. But there must always be some lives into which comes only the sadness and none of the bliss of loving.